0: Amen. Please be seated. And if you would please turn to the letter of 1st Timothy. 1st Timothy chapter 2. Where in a moment we'll read from verse 8, verses 8 through 10, 1st Timothy chapter 2. Timothy grew up in Lystra a town in what we call today Turkey. He was discipled by his mother and grandmother, two faithful Jewish women who had heard the Apostle Paul and joined the local Christian church. Sometime between Paul's first and second missionary journeys, the elders of that church and the people recognized a gift in Timothy, a calling, if you will, In obedience to that calling, the church offered him to Paul as a companion. Timothy is then, the text tells us, ordained that his hands are laid on him. And for many years, he travels, he learns, and he even writes with Paul, co-authoring some of our New Testament letters. Although the exact term, pastor, may not have been used by Timothy, the clear outline of what it means to be a pastor can be seen in his life and calling. Maybe the simplest description would be simply to call him a teaching elder. Whatever we designate Timothy's role, his calling was to build on the foundation the apostles had established through their own leadership and teaching. For this reason, pastors and men training for ministry have always come to this book and felt that it is speaking directly to them in a unique way. When I took it up two years ago and began reading it over and over, I certainly felt that way. However, to confine to confine this letter to just pastors would be a huge mistake. Above all else, this letter reveals what God wants from his whole church, a bigger agenda. The letter helps to answer one of the biggest and I think pressing questions of our time. What does God, what does God want from his church? The focus, this focus is front and center in the universally accepted purpose statement for the letter, which comes to us at the end of chapter 3. There Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In our last sermon, we noted how Paul urges Timothy, first of all, to reform to reform the church's prayer life in chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 when paul established this church in ephesus he had installed in its life big prayers prayers for the nations prayers for all those in authority but in his absence the church had slipped into an exclusive mindset Chapter 1 hints at this problem. It tells us that there were leading men in the church who were teaching Jewish myths and who longed to be called rabbi and were misusing the Torah, the Old Testament. These men who wanted to be called rabbi were not particularly excited to pray for the emperor or even for Paul's mission to the world. In fact, chapter 2, verse 7 suggests they may have even doubted the legitimacy of Paul's call, which leads Paul to put himself on record. He writes in verse 7 of chapter 2, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So there are major doctrinal teaching problems in the Ephesian church. But notice with me today that alongside these more doctrinal problems, we now begin to see what we might call practical problems with their worship. A lack of holiness, a lack of reverence, a lack of love. Paul is then concerned here for the life of God's household, his church. How is one to behave in the household of God? Let's consider this great topic once again. Please stand then with me as I read for us verses 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you once again that in your son's mediatorial work, He not only covered our sins by his blood, but he won for us your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would now guide our minds and hearts in truth, that you would take away from us misunderstanding, prejudice, and unbelief, and that you would establish in us the pure and clear word of truth. Do this, Father, that your church might be built up in this place so that you might receive the glory for this is your household and you alone deserve the glory and honor. So we pray do all this father for your glory and for the glory of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you probably know, uh, guessing most of you know, that there is a huge movement a huge movement in the Western world toward what some have called a genderless society. Cultural leaders, the major American corporations, and our academic sector are fully and openly committed to this change. McDonald's joins with Budweiser and ExxonMobil. Harvard joins with Hollywood and Google. They've come together to reimagine what it means to be human. They've come together, let's be honest, to flex their incredible power, economic, cultural, judicial, and academic. Together, they've engaged in all kinds of fanciful reimaginings of what it means to be human. Birthing people, is just one example of the level of fantasy and anti-science that hallmarks these movements. Recently, I've personally come into contact with two people, knowledgeable, intelligent people, who nonetheless were advocating openly for an androgynous humanity. They were suggesting that as humans evolve and progress, we will cease to even notice or use categories like male and female. Mankind will become, in their fantasy, in their dream, a generic middle being. Fashion, film, and other industries are doing their part. Choosing models, you'll see this increasingly, I know I am, choosing models that can look or dress as both male and female. The goal, of course, is to try and blur the line at least for a moment, to make it look like there is only one thing here where always there has been two. But unfortunately for them, creation is founded in separation. Remember your Genesis account. What is creation in the Bible but a series of divisions, night and day, land and water, male. And female. Where God has created diversity and harmony, they seek unanimity and ultimately autonomy in its purest form. Even allowing God the authority to give us our gender is to them a horrific intrusion into their sacred self expression. I begin this way not to complain. But because Paul does something rather old-fashioned here, doesn't he? He speaks to men and women separately. He rightly assumes the ancient truth that men and women are in fact different and that we struggle with different sins, a fact that is constantly affirmed by life experience and data. For just one example, this morning, the United Nations estimates that over 90% of all murders worldwide are committed by males. In light of that, who can blame Paul for targeting men as those who need to avoid anger in our text? Now, of course, there is overlap. What Paul says to the men here clearly applies to women as well. It's not okay for women to live in anger or be quarrelsome. Likewise, the men also should seek to adorn themselves appropriately with good works. But Paul divides his statements up to reflect the sins we generally, generally tend towards. That said, don't miss this important point. Despite the very different experiences we have as men and women and the temptations we tend towards, At the end of the day, at the end of the day, and this is clear in the text, men and women share together the same basic ultimate calling. Men are to lift holy hands. Women are to adorn themselves with good works because our joint calling is to live for God in everything. Our joint, our shared chief end is to glorify God And to enjoy him forever. Let's look now at how Paul unfolds that one calling to both men and women. To work through these verses, I want to direct our thoughts this morning to three things prayer, hands, and adornment. Prayer, hands, and adornment. Let's begin with prayer. This whole chapter, as we've already noted, is about prayer. That's the background, the context for what Paul is talking about. This is the first item that Paul addresses in his quest to fix the problems at Ephesus. As we noticed noted last time in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul deals with the content of the public prayers and worship. They had stopped praying for the world and their leaders. Paul wants the church's prayers, their public prayers, reformed and expanded back to what they were originally but notice with me that he isn't speaking here primarily of private prayer is he the context is clearly public worship what is happening when the household of God gathers together Paul is not concerned how women dress in private in their prayer closet. Nor is he saying here that men have to lift up hands when they crawl into bed at night and say their goodnight prayers. Rather, the issue here, the context here, is the prayers of God's people in the context of their gathered worship. And this is what worries me, because I think there is a big gap between what Paul thought about church and what we tend to think about church as Americans. Today, for most Americans, most American Christians, prayer in worship has become something of a filler, a sort of transition element in our worship. We have a series of quick prayers that move us from one part of the service to the next. Now, let me be clear. In and of itself, it's okay to use prayer in this way. It's not wrong to offer a quick prayer as we move from singing to preaching. I just did that a moment ago. It's not wrong to end a meeting with a quick word of prayer. But is that it? Is that all? Is prayer meant only to fill the cracks, as it were? Is it just filler? Well, the Bible doesn't think so, and I can assure you Paul and Timothy did not think so. The image here in verse 8 of men lifting hands in prayer, comes right from the synagogue worship, which Timothy and most Christians had known and were familiar with, and which undeniably formed the basis of the early Christian practices. For the Jews, for Paul, for Timothy, a synagogue was above all a place of prayer. In fact, to this day, you must have a certain number of Jewish men to form a synagogue, and even a certain number of Jewish men before you can pray certain prayers in that synagogue. Because the temple was far away, the synagogue was a gathering to offer up the incense of prayer to God. You were far from Jerusalem's temple, you were scattered among the nations. But the true temple in heaven was open to you through prayer in your synagogue. Early Christians would probably have been very comfortable then with the terminology that is still used in some of the old Anglican churches today, where Sunday services are referred to as morning and evening prayer. Of course, with that background, hands upraised would have marked the movement of the prayers up to God in his heavenly holy temple. David makes this connection explicit in Psalm 141 verse 2. David writes, "Let my prayer, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice." David here connects The prayers of God's people with the incense in the temple, the sweet-smelling aroma that was burned there in the temple. Prayer was and is worship. In fact, as I hope we will see, prayer is the context for all our worship. Now, the book of Revelation reveals to us that the same thing is happening right now and is still relevant for us as New Testament Christians. John, remember, writes of four golden bowls burning incense before the throne of God. And John says, quote, these are the prayers of the saints, end quote. Prayer then, prayer was central to public worship in Paul's mind and in Timothy's mind. Many synagogues and early churches did not have a full-time preacher or preaching ministry or professional musicians. Now, these things are not wrong. They're a great blessing. But because they did not always have these items, early worship would have been very much centered upon prayer. Now, if we understand this, we will, I believe, get the most out of these verses and out of our own public and private worship. All worship, all worship is to be done in a spirit of prayer. Even when we're reading God's word in private worship, in our home, we are reading the word of God in the presence of the living God. This has, to make my own confession here, this has over the years changed my private Bible reading. And I hope it can help you. When I read the Bible, I no longer imagine myself primarily as a student in a library when I'm reading. Rather, I come into God's presence in prayer, remain in a spirit of prayer as I read his holy word, asking him in a spirit of prayer, in his presence, to open his word to my mind. I believe this can really change our attitudes and values When it comes to worship, when prayer isn't the filler to get to the exciting stuff, but rather prayer as incense rising to God is the whole setting, the whole mood, the whole context for everything else we do. More to our point today, it helps us understand immediately, doesn't it, why Paul focuses on prayer and how we approach God in prayer. We aren't just here to learn. I hope that happens, but that is not our only goal. We are not here just to argue about doctrine or socialize or wear our newest outfits. Rather, we are here, brothers and sisters, to enter the temple in heaven together in the Holy Spirit and offer devotion and praise and prayer incense to our great God. There, together, together in the Spirit, we come into the temple through our elder brother, our High Priest Jesus Christ. And since we are children of God, priests of God, we offer our praise as incense. We also offer our broken-hearted repentance in the Spirit of Psalm fifty-one, where David writes, "The sacrifices, note that, the sacrifices of God are a lamb." No. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. And just as the Jews would have done, but with far more meaning because of Christ, we come into this holy temple by the Spirit to inquire of the Lord. We say, teach us your ways, O Lord. So that is prayer, just a little bit of what it means and how it forms the whole substructure for our worship private and public, and for these verses. Prayer is not the filler. Prayer is the whole environment in which worship and study is to take place. It is the context. Second, though, let's talk about men's hands. So prayer first, second of all now, hands. And hopefully with that context of prayer, this will fall right into place. If we understand, if you come to understand, that worship is to be prayerful, that we are in worship offering something up to God, we can immediately grasp, I think, why Paul is so concerned for our attitude in prayer. With their synagogue background, the men of the church would have immediately recognized Paul's command to them. In the synagogue, you would often literally wash your hands right before you lifted them up and led the congregation in prayer. They were then to pray with raised hands and with holy hands. The hands were raised because in Judaism, the priests would raise their hands to bless the people, what we today call a benediction. Or they would raise their hands upward to symbolize the rising of prayers to God. We do both of these motions every Sunday in our church. The prayer of adoration, which I did this morning, is a palms-up prayer. We offer up to God our praise. Taking that position reminds me, and it's meant to remind you what we are doing. I do that for all of us as I lead us but you are free to join me anytime you like. Now, it's true that Jesus has made the final sacrifice for sin, and nothing can be added to that. It also can't be repeated in communion or in a mass. However, there is an element of sacrifice involved in our prayers. There's an offering up to something, of something to God. Here's how Hebrews puts it, the book of Hebrews. Through him, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now the prayer of benediction is palms toward you, palms toward you, because the minister is calling down God's blessings upon you. We take this right from Jesus. Before he left the earth, the last thing Jesus did was to do what Aaron and Ezra and so many of the great Old Testament figures had done. Here's what Jesus tells us through Luke in chapter 24 of his gospel. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus' last act on earth was giving a benediction. So can you see why the benediction needs to stay in our worship and why it means so much? Our last act as pastors maybe the last time we'll ever see you. Who knows? Our last act each Sunday morning and evening is to bless you. Jesus left our earth with hands raised in benediction. So let us leave our worship together with hands raised in benediction. I hope this little summary helps you understand the kinds of prayers Paul was thinking of. Synagogue history and even ancient Christian tombs show us this beautiful practice of men praying with lifted hands in worship. But please don't miss this, that it is not enough to simply have your hands in the right position, is it? Paul here is after the heart, isn't he? We can discuss the hand positions and what we should do exactly. Personally, I have no problem with any of you raising your hands in worship. You're free to do so and you're free not to do so. Phil Riken notes that Presbyterians tend to bow in prayer Anglicans tend to kneel, and Charismatics tend to lift. But let's agree, let's agree that the position of our hands is not the focus, as Paul makes clear here. As with Jesus' own teaching, the focus is always the heart. The hands, says Paul, must be, are to be, holy hands. Once again, Paul is drawing here on the temple where the priests would wash their hands repeatedly throughout the services. Now, we are not physically in a temple this morning. I'm not a priest. We're not doing sacrifices here because Christ's sacrifice has put an end to the sacrificial system. However, the point of the washing, the reason God made the priests do it, of course, was to call them to holiness of life as they approached God. Paul is now drawing on that imagery to say that our hearts and lives do impact our prayers. He is saying, especially to the men, that the lifting of hands is not proper when the heart is full of anger and quarreling. The New Testament brings this to us again and again. For example, did you know men? Did you know married men, especially? that in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter warns husbands that their prayers may be hindered if they do not love and honor their wives. Jesus gives us another warning in Mark 11. And whenever you stand praying, he said, notice that, whenever you stand praying, forgive, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In other words, you're there in church, hands lifted up, you're asking God for a million dollars worth of forgiveness while refusing to give $20 worth of forgiveness to another person. God sees that, and Jesus warns you of the danger of praying in that condition Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, also warns us about our hearts when we're praying and worshiping. The author writes this admonition, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. James chapter 4, verse 8, sounds like Paul, sounds like this passage where James writes this, Quote, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is saying, how can you really come to God in prayer when you are double-minded to the core? Lastly, we might quote Ephesians 4, 26. The letter of Ephesians written to this same church. Chapter 4, verse 26 says this, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Men, when we come before God in prayer, we cannot hide. That is part of what the uplifted hands represent. God knows our heart. If we come to church to be angry, to be competitive, and to debate with each other, this will hinder our prayers. This doesn't mean we can't talk constructively about our differences. That's iron sharpening iron. That's good. The wounds of a friend are faithful. But our anger, our desire to be right, our competitive spirit is a threat to our worship and the worship of our sisters around us. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul will apply this to men seeking the office of elder, especially. They, quote, must not be violent they must be gentle not quarrelsome and that leads us to our third and final word we have prayer we have hands and lastly we have adornment adornment look again at verses 9 and 10 paul writes likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. These verses begin, of course, uh, with the word likewise. Likewise, Paul writes. Paul often uses that very word in Greek as he moves from speaking to men to speaking to women or when he moves from speaking from one member of the household, children, to another member of the household. Remember, 1 Timothy was written to bring order to God's household, the church. So here Paul addresses the sisters of the church in God's household. And please, sisters especially, note briefly with me what Paul does not say. What Paul does not say, sisters. Paul does not give a dress code. He does not set a length of skirt or a kind of shoe. Why? Because Paul knows that the women of the church have the Holy Spirit, and he trusts them to know what is appropriate. He simply says here, dress appropriately, dress modestly, in fact, the word here is, will be used later in chapter 3 of the elders. The elders are to be men who act appropriately. So how do you work this out in detail? I think the answer maybe is given to us in Titus chapter 2. Paul says, says there that the older women, the more mature women, are to train the younger women. In other words, you have the spirit, just as the men do, Identify the godly women among you in your midst and let them teach the younger women. The men are to do the same. And so how we work this out in details does not come here to me today. Paul doesn't say. It falls to you as godly women to instruct one another in those details. Second of all, please note, again, especially sisters, that there is nothing, nothing of what we might call today body shaming here. Nothing. The Bible never condemns women's bodies. In fact, when the Bible does, not very often, talk about the female figure, it is with a mix of reverence and awe. Nor does the Bible ever, ever blame women for men's problems with lust, or more importantly, place on women the burden of fixing men and their problems. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, reminded men, reminded us, that their problem, our problem, is fundamental heart longing for adultery. Men are naturally adulterous without God's grace and prayer and power. You ladies cannot fix that for us. Outside of Christ, adultery for men is like breathing no amount of burqa wearing will resolve it for us. Having said that, that's not to say, that's not to say that the law of love is absent here. Women should dress in a way that is not designed to purposely inflame men, but not, not because they are called to fix men, rather because we are called to dress, to speak, and to act in ways that are best for others. Love means that men and women are to think about what is best for everyone around us. But the Bible never suggests that women must fix men or be responsible for their problem. Third, in the same way, the Bible never condemns fashion or forbids women from taking care of themselves appropriately. In the book of Ezekiel, God takes Israel as a bride and lavishes on her the loveliest clothing. He puts rings in her ears and nose and necklaces as well. Or think of the woman in Proverbs 31. We are told of her that she, quote, clothes all her household in scarlet, end quote. Even Jesus himself desires to present his bride without wrinkle, or spot so the issue is not the issue is not having decent or lovely clothes or even a proper enjoyment of fashion more specifically the condemnation here of braided hair and gold as far as i can tell has universally been understood not just by me but by everyone i read from all ages universally understood not as an absolute prohibition against jewelry or basic braiding of hair, but rather extreme practices. The language used here in Greek refers to elaborate hair ornamentation that involved weaving gold and jewels into the hair. This was, as best we can tell, the practice of courtesans and extremely wealthy people in Roman society. As in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is concerned about what this says to the poor women of the church, how it could shame them. And again, if we see, and this is why I started with this, if we see our services, again, in the context of prayer and coming into the presence of God together, we will be so sensitive, won't we, to what is appropriate in that context. An elaborate dress, an elaborate hairstyle might be completely appropriate on your wedding day, but maybe not in the holy worship of the body of Christ. Now, sisters, if all this feels a little offensive, if you feel that Paul is talking down to women, that he has these great words about men praying, but then just talks to women about their clothing, if you feel even a twinge of that, push on, dear sister, to verse 10. Because if you think Paul is talking down to women, you haven't read verse 10 properly. Paul writes what he wants to see from the women of God's house. Quote, what is proper for women who profess godliness, good works. Literally, that can be translated. Those who are viewed, those who are acknowledged or viewed in the church as experts in holiness, must adorn themselves with good works. We'll explore this in weeks to come, but always remember, and we'll come back to this again and again, that Paul had seen, he had seen firsthand women prophesying and women speaking in tongues. And here you see, he assumes that women will be deeply godly women seeking good works and even having some expertise in those things. Godliness is not just men's high calling. It is also, ladies, your radiant adornment. We share this calling together as image bearers and as those who are now heirs of heaven, united to Christ. We share this destiny together to be clothed fully in him. So then, brothers and sisters, once again, today, as you think on prayer and hands and adornment, remember who you are and remember where you are going. What will ultimately fix the problem with the Ephesians' worship, what will fix our problems as well, is to remember and believe who we are and where we are going It's not just a matter of getting the hands in the right position or putting on the right outfit. Rather, it's a matter of embracing all that God is for us now and in the future. So to all who are angry and quarrelsome, men and women, know that even now, if you're angry, know that even now, Jesus's benediction hangs over his church, over you. He has given you his peace. So as much as it lies with you, be at peace with all men and raise your hands in holy prayer to receive that peace and to praise the Lord whose benediction is life itself. Look also to the future, what you will be on that great day, the day to which we are all moving right now. Jesus will lift his holy hands Over us in one final benediction, and peace will cover the earth, and the anger of men, the anger of men that has led to countless wars and murders, will cease. His scarred hands will bring shalom to the hearts of every Christian man and woman, a final, unbreakable benediction. As we have lived, for millennia under a curse, so we will live eternally under the unbroken banner of his love. See by faith his holy hands lifted in benediction, and that may that, that biblical vision, break the pattern of anger in your life and in your worship. To men and women concerned for status, for those taken up with adornment, See the robes in which Jesus wraps his beloved children. He has given to us his own righteousness, the garment of praise for the veil of mourning. Now we can properly enjoy earthly fashion because it will never have our hearts. We are captivated by the garment he has given. With the angry men, you too must look forward to that day. At that moment, we shall see him as he is. We shall see him in his splendor. And then in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be remade in splendor. We will be presented without spot or wrinkle. And then we shall sing anew, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are, my glorious dress Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, shall I lift up my head. Then shall our worship, brothers and sisters, be unveiled. But until then, let us worship him now, male and female, even now, in the awesome joy of prayer and in the splendor of holiness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do now continue in the spirit of prayer. For we are in your presence, in your presence as your word is read, in your presence as your word is taught. Now to sing your praises, receive our offering, purify us, take from us our anger, our lust, our concern for the flesh, our concern for appearance, and give us one pure heart that burns for your glory that loves your radiance and the splendor given to us and the splendor yet to come. Give this to your people now and free them from their sin. For we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.